Welcome to part 13 of the Bedtime Stories for Insomniac's podcast presentation of Near Death, a Rainy Day Investigation. Before we get started on this week's installment, where Jennifer visits her new office and her stakeout with Nate of Diane's apartment gets exciting, please take a moment, if you haven't already, to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast app or on Audible so you don't miss an exciting chapter. You'll also get my weekly short stories. Please like and share. It really helps to allow me to continue providing the audio versions of my work for free. This unabridged audio edition is presented as a prelude to the upcoming release of the next book in the series, Afterlife. So make sure to follow all of the authors on Amazon using the links in this episode's description to be notified when it's available. Until then, enjoy the following chapters of Near Death. Chapter 42 Dave was sitting at a desk that was nothing more than a card table with a folding chair pulled up next to it. Sweat beaded on his brow and soaked his shirt. Of all the locations they'd been stuffed into over the years he'd been working with Dr. Day, this one was the bottom of a very deep barrel. They were in a corner of an athletic supply room. There were shelves filled with various types of balls, gloves, helmets, track and field paraphernalia, and a caged-off area that held the more valuable assets of the university's athletic department. If there was any ventilation, he couldn't find it. The room was swelteringly hot, though between himself, Emily, and Bits, he was the only one who was suffering. Emily was pedaling slowly on a stationary bike while reading a textbook. Whatever was playing through her earbuds was successfully blocking out the sounds of yelling and grunting college athletes in the adjoining gym. Bits had cleared out a corner of the equipment cage. The fenced-off section was locked when Dave had first arrived, but locks and other security measures never seemed to impede Bits. When he wanted to be somewhere, others didn't want him. He had said something about it being a near-perfect Faraday cage, and once he had crawled inside, he dropped his normally guarded demeanor and seemed one or two degrees less paranoid than normal. He was lost in a screen full of code, while a random techno soundtrack battled the sound of Emily's exercising and the shouts from the adjoining gymnasium. The only part of the jock closet, as Dave now thought of their newest office, that remotely resembled anything professional, was a corner that had been cleaned out for Dr. Day's desk. The two oversized posters leaned against the walls so that it looked as if the haunting eyes of Harry Houdini were staring into the seductive glare of the mysterious professor. Dave knew the dean was especially mad at Dr. Day. They hadn't received the usual barrage of angry messages, just silence and banishment to this equipment room. Things had been going well, despite Dave being relegated to the receptionist's desk at their last office. It had been an office. Here, he barely had room for his keyboard on the folding table, and the sole phone line ended at an outdated handset on Dr. Day's desk. Fortunately, Bits managed to set it up so that the calls also went to Dave's cell phone. Jennifer entered. Dave looked up from his computer. He tried to get her attention, but she seemed not to see him. Her attention was focused on a rack of basketballs. Jennifer stepped back outside. She checked the number on the door against the one on a slip of paper she held, and then re-entered. She scanned the room and saw Bits huddled over a laptop in his cage, Emily pedaling away on a stationary bike, and Dave seated at his card table. He offered her a welcoming smile and wave. He nodded his head toward the corner where her desk and posters were situated. Jennifer spied her corner. She closed her eyes, took a deep breath, and stayed that way for nearly a minute. Are you all right, Dr. Day? Dave asked. I'm hoping when I open my eyes, I'm going to be back in our old offices instead of the athletic department's closet, she answered. She opened one eye and then the other. But when she looked again, the racks of equipment were still there. She crossed over to her desk, placed her hands on it, then tilted her head back and howled. The primal screen released a torrent of anger, frustration and despair in one ear-splitting screech. Dave was uncertain what to do. 
He had never seen her like this. She was usually a roll-with-the-punches sort of person. It was Dave who usually felt hopeless enough to scream. Dr. Day was the one who always gave him a compliment and made unrealistic assurances that somehow made it all better. He wasn't sure how to do that for her. Jennifer spun around. Her shriek had garnered the attention of Emily and Bits as well. They too were unaccustomed to the fury and rage that now showed on Dr. Day's face. She spied a soccer ball on the floor nearby and gave it a kick that would have put it into orbit if they were outside. It bounced off a wall, knocking into a rack of basketballs, sending all of them to the floor bouncing and rolling. Emily ceased her spinning. Bits turned off his music, and the room fell silent. Even the activity from the gym next door seemed to take a break. The soccer ball rolled back toward Jennifer, stopping just short of her feet. This, she said in a voice devoid of her usual cheery optimism, is unacceptable. She turned to Dave. Get the dean on the phone. Dave automatically searched his desk for the phone, but then remembered the sole handset for their current location was on Dr. Day's desk. He stood up from his table, then crossed over to the desk in the corner against which Jennifer was now leaning, regarding the equipment room with a steely, furious glare. He picked up the handset and dialed the extension. It was one he was unfortunately very familiar with. It's ringing, he told Jennifer. She didn't even look at him. Her jaw was clenched, and her arms were folded tightly across her chest. Hello, I have Dr. Day for Dean Patterson. Dave listened to the voice on the other end for a moment, then asked, When do you think he'll be available? Jennifer spoke up. Tell her that if she doesn't get the dean on the phone right now, I'll go to the media instead. Dave put his hand over the mouthpiece of the phone. The media? he asked. Jennifer turned to Dave. Tell her, she ordered. Dave repeated the message to the dean's assistant. The media? Emily asked, curious. Jennifer ignored her, focusing her attention on Dave. Yes, I'll hold, Dave said into the phone. He turned to Dr. Day, hoping for some guidance as to what to say next but Jennifer had returned her stare to some unfortunate spot on the opposite wall. Hello, Dean Patterson, Dave said. Tell him this so-called office he stuck us in is not suitable for a tenured professor. Um, Dave said tentatively into the phone. Dr. Day wanted to tell you she's not happy with... Jennifer cut Dave off and repeated her message. This so-called office is not suitable for a tenured professor. Dave took a breath. She wanted to tell you that this so-called office is not suitable for a tenured professor. He listened for a moment, then said, He's sorry, but the funding for the other office fell through, and there's nothing else. Tell him I know exactly why the funding fell through, and so does he. And if he's going to be such a petty bureaucratic nincompoop, he should resign and let someone who cares have the job. Dave put his hand over the mouthpiece again. Can you repeat that one? Jennifer snatched the phone from his hands. Robert, do I really need to take this to Dateline? There's a producer over there who's dying to do a profile on me, and I'm sure she'd love this angle. Professor punished for Dean's disastrous fundraising attempt. She listened for only a second before cutting him off. Of course it's your fault. I did the right thing. You're the one who let the dollar signs blind you to an untenable situation. Did you even know that his wife was dead? Did you even care? Dave's mouth hung open. He'd never heard Dr. Day let loose on the Dean like this before. Usually she deflected his complaints with a joke. This was an altogether different side of her. I don't know. You're the administrator. Find some other rich widower you can sweet-talk out of a few million. I do my part. You know that my class is bringing more students than... Jennifer bit her upper lip listening to how the dean was answering her. My work in that area does not interfere with my responsibilities to the department. You know that. And if you had told me Worthington was under the influence of that dime-store Svengali, 
I maybe could have done something to help and keep your precious donation. Jennifer fumed as she listened to the dean's reply. You are a pompous, arrogant idiot, Bobby. I hope you rot in hell. She smashed the handset back into its cradle and buried her face in her hands. There was a knock at the open door to the supply room. Everyone's heads turned to see Nate standing there, neatly dressed, despite having his arm in a sling and one foot in an orthopedic boot. In his good arm, he carried what looked like a giant basket. He offered a friendly smile. You guys don't like to stay in one place, do you? The joke didn't elicit the reaction he was expecting. There was a seriousness among Jennifer and her staff that didn't take a detective to discover. Should I come back later? he asked. No, come on in, Jennifer said, wiping the start of a tear from one eye as she walked around the desk and took a seat behind it. Dave, would you and Emily mind getting the equipment over to Diane's apartment? She tossed Dave the keys to her van. I can help out, Bits offered. You can? Dave asked, surprised that Bits would volunteer to do anything. Jennifer smiled. Thank you, Bits. I'd appreciate that. I could also see about transferring Worthington's liquid assets to a Cayman bank account under the dean's name, leak it to the university president and the press. A kill two birds with one stone kind of deal, Bits added. That's okay, Bits. Thanks for the offer, though. I'll keep it in mind, Jennifer replied. The three of them grabbed some equipment cases and a dolly loaded with other boxes and left the equipment room, leaving Jennifer and Nate alone. He limped over to her desk and looked around. I'm not saying it's the Taj Mahal, but it does have possibilities. Jennifer laughed. <laughs> it doesn't matter. He won. I give up. I can't fight this battle anymore. Maybe I should move on to someplace else where I'm not constantly in someone's crosshairs. If you find such a place, let me know. I could use a break from office politics myself. He sat down on the edge of the desk across from Jennifer. You know, I'm not usually one for giving people pep talks. I'm probably not very good at it, but in your case, I'm going to give it a try. Oh, why is that? Because I just saw three young people, who you mean the world to, soldier on in the face of the biggest adversity they're likely to see, until they get married. Jennifer chuckled. She was determined to stay in a bad mood, but Nate was making that difficult. What would happen to them if you left? Bits would probably be okay, but Dave would have to start over on whatever it is he's doing, and Emily would be forced to try out for the cheerleading squad. Jennifer couldn't hold it in any longer. Oh God, that would be truly an earth-shattering disaster for all involved. And it would be all your fault. Wow, you really didn't undersell sucking at pep talks. Listen, I may not be on board with all the ghost hunting stuff, but I've seen you teach. I've seen the loyalty that your staff has for you. I saw you do the right thing at Worthington's house, despite knowing it would land you in this godforsaken wasteland of an office. And I respect that. I don't think this university can afford to lose you. I can't fight this battle alone. You don't have to, Emily announced. Jennifer and Nate turned and saw Emily and the guys standing in the doorway. We're all behind you, Dr. Day, Dave added. Doesn't sound like you're alone at all, Nate said. Jennifer considered. Okay, I'm in. She looked around the equipment room. Don't get used to this place. I promise we won't be here long. She took a deep breath and stood up. Diane is expecting us to help her find out what's going on at her apartment, so let's get that done. She straightened up, wiped away a tear running down her cheek, and grabbed her bag. She nodded at Nate's basket. I hope there's food in there. I haven't had lunch. Chapter 43 Nate stood out of the way and watched as Jennifer directed her crew to place a variety of sensors and cameras around Diane's apartment. Diane stood next to her, nervously watching the technical invasion of her home. Bits set up a portable workstation that had an array of three monitors displaying camera feeds and visualizations of different instruments 
measuring electromagnetic activity, temperature, and a host of other parameters. Dave, Bits called out. Tilt that bedroom camera to the left a few degrees. One of the video screens shifted. That's it, Bits said. He turned to Jennifer. My work is done. You've got the standard setup, cameras on visual spectrum as well as infrared. Motion detectors are here, he added, pointing to an area on one of the monitors. And the ambient noise monitors are over there. I worked on the algorithm to minimize the noise and amplify the anomalies. Had to put in my own hotspots. Ms. Collins' Wi-Fi was too slow. Everything is streaming to the cloud with a local SSD backup. Thanks, Bits, Jennifer said. Ping me if you need anything, he said, and closed a laptop, stuck it into a backpack, and slipped quietly out of the apartment. He's an odd one, Nate commented. Where did you find him? I didn't. He found me. Just showed up one day at my office with some gadgets and asked if I would test them for him. I don't know if he's even a student at the university. He just comes and goes, brings me new toys, and handles all the data, so I don't ask too many questions. I'm guessing that's how you found my address and my uncle. I'm out of here too, Emily said. I am a student, and I've got homework to catch up on. She stuffed some leftover devices into one of the cases, grabbed her backpack, and left the apartment. Dave entered from the bedroom, carrying a mostly empty crate. He looked around and saw that Bits and Emily were gone inside. Anything else you need? Looks like all the sensors and cameras are in place. Can you put the cases and crates over in that corner? Jennifer asked. Dave nodded, then collected the containers all the equipment had been brought in, and stacked them neatly in the corner. What's next? Diane asked. Well, we wait. Make the apartment as welcoming as possible for whatever presence may be inhabiting the space. Nate hobbled over to the sofa and lowered himself down. Weirdest stakeout I've ever been on, he said. Usually we're not in the same room as whoever or whatever we have under surveillance. Do we sit in a circle and chant or something? Diane asked. No, this isn't a seance and I'm not a medium. We're just going to record everything we can so we can try to capture some evidence of what you're experiencing and maybe discover what we can do to mitigate it. A lot of times paranormal phenomena is generated by living people rather than spirits. You think it's me? Or possibly connected to you, Jennifer said. I'm voting for the living people angle, Nate added. Diane turned to Nate. It wasn't Jerry. I know you don't like him, and I can understand why, but we are friends, and he just wants to make sure I'm okay. Did you tell him we were coming tonight? Nate asked. Dr. Day asked me not to mention it to anyone. You didn't exactly answer my question. Diane smiled. No, I did not tell Jerry you were going to be here. Her phone rang. She peeked at the caller ID and frowned before answering. Hello, she said. Her expression grew aggravated as she listened to the voice on the other end. All right, I'll be there in 15 minutes. She hung up the phone and turned to Jennifer. There's an emergency at work, she explained, giving the word emergency a sarcastic inflection. I need to go for at least a few hours. Is that okay? Of course, Jennifer assured her. It'll be good to get a baseline off the sensors while you're not here. Diane grabbed her bag and threw some papers from her desk into it, then she slipped into her coat. Help yourself to anything in the fridge, she offered, then hurriedly walked out of the apartment past Dave. Everything's all tidied up, he told Jennifer. I'll be back in the morning. Aren't you forgetting something? Jennifer asked. Dave turned around, a puzzled look on his face. Nate's dog, Jennifer reminded him. Dave reacted with shock and surprise. I kind of hoped you were kidding about that. Nate reached into a pocket and tossed Dave a key on a souvenir San Francisco keychain. Her name is Madge. Dave tried to catch the keys in midair, but dropped them. He stooped over and reluctantly picked them up. I don't know if my apartment is the best place to keep a dog. Isn't there anyone else? You don't have to take her home, Nate said. I set up the guest room for you. There's a note on the kitchen table explaining everything you need to do. She has a kennel, but I wouldn't bother trying to keep her in there. 
She's a notorious escape artist. I left you some money and some local takeout menus, too. Treat yourself to something nice. I really appreciate you doing this. Dave's demeanor suddenly changed. He wasn't used to being rewarded with anything beyond a kind word for his efforts. Thank you, he said. Oh, and there's probably a police cruiser parked up front. They know you're coming. If anyone tries to break into the house and kill you, let them know. A panic washed over Dave's face. Why would they want to kill me? He asked. Oh, they don't want to kill you. They want to kill me. It's nothing for you to worry about. Forget I mentioned it. Okay, Dave said sheepishly. He stuffed the keys into his pocket and turned slowly to the door. His short-lived enthusiasm had evaporated. Thanks, Dave, Jennifer added. Dave grunted. He opened the door and jumped in surprise when he saw Rose from across the hall standing there. Hello again, young man, she said. She peeked around him and spied Jennifer and Nate sitting in the living room. Is Diane here? Sorry, no, she had to go to work, Jennifer explained. She'll be back later tonight. Anything we can help you with? Oh, no. I was just wondering what all the commotion was. A lot of coming and going going on. We're just... Nate cut her off. We're going to be leaving soon ourselves. Sorry for the bother. Oh, all right, Rose said. Have a nice day. She turned around and shuffled across the hall to her open door and disappeared inside. One more thing, Dave, Jennifer said. Dave turned, his usual defeated demeanor hanging on his face. Yes? Could you bring Nate's basket over here? Dave looked around and spotted the basket nestled between some other containers. He pulled it out and carried it over to where Jennifer and Nate were seated and placed it on the coffee table. Thanks, Jennifer said. You're the best. I know, Dave answered, unconvinced. He headed for the door, picked up his own backpack on the way, and closed it behind him. Well, Jennifer said cheerfully, looks like it's just you and me. And I don't know about you, but I am really starving. Shall we see what you brought? Nate smiled and sat back as Jennifer began unpacking the basket. Chapter 44 Jennifer placed a hand over her stomach as she reclined, satisfied. Okay, two questions. Where did you learn to cook like that, and how is it you're not married? Did my mother put you up to that second question? Well, in my experience, it's rare to find a man whose kitchen repertoire goes beyond the microwave. Nate shrugged. I always liked good food, and after a while I decided it would be easier on my wallet to learn how to make it on my own instead of always paying someone else to do it. Well, my compliments to the chef. I'm going to hire you to cater all of our stakeouts from now on. I can't imagine the meal at Worthington's would have been any better. Nate cast a glance at the workstation monitors. Several of the video windows showed different angles of the living room, most of them with either Nate or Jennifer or both of them in view. Others showed the kitchen, the bedroom, and even some discreet views in the bathroom. So... Nate casually asked. What do you expect to see? Hard to say, Jennifer answered. Have you caught a lot of ghosts on video? I wish, Jennifer answered. It's not that easy. There's even a debate on whether a video or even a film camera can see a ghost. There may be a psychic component that cannot be captured electronically or chemically. Then why all the cameras? Nate asked. What we're more likely to capture is our phenomena interacting with physical objects. Diane described in two of her major encounters that our ghost broke a perfume bottle and then a coffee cup. Hopefully we'll catch something like that, Jennifer explained. Nate pointed out one of the other sections on the monitor. Electromagnetic activity? he asked. Yes, we often detect various electromagnetic anomalies during paranormal events. What about the microphones? Nate asked, pointing at some displays that danced in sync with the sound of their voices. Sometimes we get audio artifacts. Got all your bases covered, Nate remarked. What happens if you don't record anything? If Diane lets us, we'll leave behind one of Bit's omniboxes. She held up her hand. 
a little device about this big, a scaled-down stakeout in a box, and we keep looking. There's just too many examples of unexplained phenomena. Eventually, we're bound to capture some definitive proof of one sort or another. It may be that we just haven't developed the tools to capture the evidence. Bits is always coming up with different sensors and cameras and microphones. It's just a matter of time. Or maybe it's just a big waste of time, Nate suggested. Jennifer assumed the air she projected in her lectures. At one point, scientists thought that atoms were the smallest unit of matter. Then we discovered electrons and protons and neutrons and developed the tools to smash them together into even smaller pieces and record their existence. We can't see them with a naked eye or even with a video camera, but once we discovered how to detect them, no one doubted their existence. Interesting argument, Nate conceded. You're not convinced. Well, if you're saying a human brain is required to see a ghost, then no, I'm not. The way the mind interprets information from our senses bears little resemblance to what most people would consider reality. We're evolutionarily designed to be susceptible to confirmation bias, and memory is notoriously fallible. That's true, but the fact that the human mind is a mystery that we are still a long way from fully understanding just means that there may be room for the possibility that it can be receptive to thoughts from others, that it can perceive physical objects beyond the reach of our senses, that it can even sense events that haven't happened yet. That's a stretch. But if we can get there, if we can conceive of a mind that reaches beyond the physical, then the concept of a soul isn't far behind. After all, what is a soul but a human mind that exists beyond the impermanence of our physical selves? Nate smiled politely. You can't tell me that you've never had a gut feeling about a case you are working on. That's different, Nate insisted. That's merely the mind processing information on a subconscious level. It was Jennifer's turn to smile politely. Nate shifted uncomfortably in his chair. You're going to bring up the license plate thing again. What's your explanation? Simple, Nate said. When Max and I were driving to the store, my subconscious mind took note of a suspicious car, maybe even noticed the two robbers inside it. When I was asleep after surgery, my brain connected the events of my being shot with that subtextual memory, and it surfaced as a mnemonic phrase. That doesn't sound very simple. You think it's more likely that my soul took a little vacation from my body, gathered intel on the robbers, and delivered it to me when I woke up? Out-of-body experiences are fairly common to people who are receptive to them, and it's also an element of near-death experiences. Are we really going to go there again? No, not if it makes you uncomfortable. Nate ended the conversation and started cleaning up the remnants of their meal. He sealed up the plastic containers he had brought the food in and stacked them up, laying a half-empty package of crackers on the top. He stood up and picked up the pyramid of Tupperware with his good hand. I can help you with that, Jennifer offered. I got it, Nate said. He started hobbling toward the kitchen to store the leftovers in Diane's fridge. About halfway there, the crackers started to slide off the top. He tried to rebalance the load, but the crackers fell off, and he was barely able to maintain control of the containers. The package hit the floor, and the crackers smashed into crumbs. Are you okay? Jennifer asked. I'm fine. I'll clean it up in a minute. He continued walking to the kitchen. The lights flickered. Nate stopped and looked back at Jennifer. Is that the best you can do? She held up her hands to show she had nothing to do with it. I was just sitting here. Probably all the electronics Bit has plugged in here. Actually, all of his stuff runs off a battery. He's very particular about isolating his systems from stray signals and power surges. Nate nodded suspiciously, then continued into the kitchen. He set his containers on the counter, then opened the refrigerator and placed the leftovers onto a free shelf. Diane didn't appear to be the type of person to keep a lot of food on hand. He closed the fridge, then looked around for something to clean up the mess. He spotted a tall, narrow cupboard and found a broom and dustpan inside and carried them out to the living room. You just missed it, Jennifer said. Missed what? 
One of the magnetometer windows just went nuts. Probably because I opened the refrigerator door. Nate approached the spot where he had dumped the crackers. Instead of being spread out on the floor, the crumbs were gathered up into a neat little pile. Nate looked over at Jennifer, who was staring at the screen. Very funny, he said. Jennifer looked up from the screens at Nate. What's funny? The mess. What about it? I may have only one good arm, but I can still use a broom. Jennifer stood up and peered over to the area of the floor where the neat pyramid of cracker parts was sitting. Shotensack, she said. Shoten what? One of the ghosts Rose told Dave about. It's in the advance notes. Didn't you get a chance to read them? Right, Nate said. And he just happened to amble by while I was in the kitchen. Too bad I didn't get a chance to see him in action. He was the building's first superintendent. Apparently he still hangs around and tidies up random messes. I told you there was a spike in electromagnetic activity. How convenient, Nate said dismissively as he clumsily swept the crackers into the dustpan. I can rewind the video for you. I swear, I didn't leave this sofa. Uh Uh-huh, Nate replied, unconvinced. He carried the dustpan back to the kitchen and dumped it into the trash before returning it and the broom to the cupboard. When he got back to the living room, Jennifer was sitting with her arms crossed, glaring at him. What? he asked. Do you approach all of your investigations with such a closed mind? I never think the neat freak ghost did it, Nate said. He shuffled over to the sofa and sat down next to Jennifer. Besides, whatever this is, it isn't an investigation. It isn't an investigation. Why? Because there's a possibility of discovering something you can't explain? Nate shook his head. I just think there's another explanation. Look, I deal with skepticism every day. My office isn't in a jockstrap closet just because I didn't play along with the dean. I've been battling with the administration and my colleagues for years to gain acceptance for my work, and I understand how difficult it is to convince people to open their minds to something that is so easy to fake. That's why I study magic. That's why I chase down every possible opportunity to find proof. I just want you to be open-minded. Okay, Nate said. If you do the same. Fine. Convince me that everything Diane experienced was Jerry Henderson. I don't have to. Oh, really? Sounds like a bit of a double standard going on here. You saw her when she was here earlier. That job of hers is a stress factory. It's much more likely to believe she accidentally left that stove on than some supernatural explanation. And the apparition she saw in her bathroom? In a steamy bathroom and the reflection of a steamed-up mirror? Stress, anxiety, maybe paranoia. A move into a new building, across the hall from a nosy neighbor full of gossip and ghost stories. You don't need to resort to the supernatural to see a woman on the brink of a nervous breakdown. Throw in the emotional roller coaster of an ex-boyfriend and don't try to tell me he's just a good friend. He's keeping her close to him because he thinks he can catch her in a vulnerable moment. Okay, Jennifer said. I might agree with you on that last point. He is kind of a slimy guy. Thank you, Nate said smugly. But I also don't think he's smart enough or motivated enough to pull off some paranormal sideshow just to get her back in bed. Nate considered, well, I can't argue with that. But it doesn't rule out that it was all in her head. Jennifer shrugged. Doesn't rule out that it was a ghost, either. All right, truce, Nate said decisively. You help me track down Henderson and catch him, Jennifer added. And catch him, Nate agreed. So I will do my best to keep an open mind tonight. Thank you, Jennifer said. So, what's for dessert? Nate reached over and pulled out another container from his basket. He set it down on the coffee table between himself and Jennifer and peeled back the lid. The aroma of the tiramisu inside brought an instant smile to Jennifer's face. Nate produced a couple of forks and handed one to her. I have to share? she asked. Chapter 45 
Nate and Jennifer were both asleep on the sofa. Nate had his booted foot up on the coffee table next to the empty tiramisu container. Jennifer had her feet tucked up under a pillow on the sofa while she leaned against Nate, her head resting on his good shoulder. The room was nearly dark except for the glow from the monitors of Bit's workstation. Most of the cameras had switched to a night vision mode, casting the room in an eerie, ghostly version of itself. In the window that shared the front door, the words, Motion Detected, superimposed themselves over the image. The door silently opened, and the light from the hallway overloaded the night vision, causing the view to wash out completely. A subtle alarm sounded from the workstation. Nate stirred. He checked his watch. It was nearly midnight. He looked at the monitors. The view of the front door had returned to its night vision mode, but he caught a movement in one of the other monitors, a glowing figure that passed from frame to frame. Day, he whispered. There's something going on. Jennifer stirred. She realized she was leaning against Nate and sat up, squinting at the monitors. Anything happened yet? Diane asked. Nate and Jennifer jumped at the sound of their host's voice. Diane let out a short scream. She collected herself and turned on a nearby lamp. Sorry, she said. I should have called you to let you know I was heading back. Work took longer than I expected, and I just wanted to get home. No apology necessary, Nate said. This is your home. Jennifer grabbed the mouse connected to the workstation and clicked the button that showed a log on one of the screens. There was nothing except for the motion detected at the front door when Diane entered. Looks like it's been quiet. Should I just stay with a friend tonight? I don't want to be in the way, Diane said. No, I prefer for you to be here. There may be a link between you and the apparition. Diane sighed. All right. I think I'm too tired to pack up anything to go anywhere anyway. She looked at the monitors and noticed the one showing her bedroom and bathroom. You're not going to be watching me, are you? Jennifer clicked on the control that minimized a couple of the cameras. Privacy mode activated, she said. Well, we're still recording, but I promise we won't look at it unless something happens. Thanks for the warning, Diane said. Good night. She turned around and headed into her room. I hope she doesn't think she walked in on anything, Jennifer said. Nate laughed. I'm hardly in any shape to try anything, he said, lifting his bad arms slightly. Does that mean you would if you were able? Jennifer asked playfully. Nate felt suddenly uncomfortable. Let's get back to the stakeout, he suggested. Jennifer ignored his attempt to change the subject. Well, you did make me the most amazing tiramisu I've ever had. And you did that with only one hand? Nate smiled. He usually didn't pull out the tiramisu unless he really wanted to impress a woman. I like tiramisu, he lied. Jennifer sensed his discomfort and backed off. She liked Nate. Maybe even more than that, she respected him. It was obvious the history with his mother was putting up walls to accepting the paranormal, but she still believed that she could tap that skepticism to open his mind as well. If this guy who you think is haunting Diane jumped to his death, wouldn't his ghost be flat? He asked. First of all, a haunting is different from an apparition. Diane's ghost appears to be interacting with her, but in the case of a haunting, it's more like there's an impression of a person or event embedded in the environment, playing out an unchanging scene. And no, the injuries to his corporeal form that caused his death would not show up in a psychic representation. Our best guess is that the apparition projects their self-image, like if you were to close your eyes and imagine looking at yourself in a mirror. That is the form that they share with us. Fun fact, most people report that the apparitions they see don't have feet. What? Nate asked in surprise. Think about it. How many people remember to include their feet when they picture themselves? You're just making this up now, Nate accused. I'm not. It's just one of those things that make sense when you consider it. 
and tilts more to the idea that an apparition is working outside of our normal senses. It also explains why some people can see them and others can't, in the exact same situation, and why we don't have any photos. Okay, let's put the ghost talk aside for a moment and talk about why this Luther guy would want to interact with Diane. He was allegedly a serial killer who targeted women of her specific physical appearance. Allegedly? Jennifer asked. I thought the police had evidence he had killed his girlfriend. Yes, but there are parts of it that just don't fit. You mean, despite evidence to the contrary, you have a gut feeling that he wasn't the killer? Jennifer goaded. Okay, point made, Nate said. I guess my biggest question is why a fireman would use an axe to kill someone. Because he's a fireman? Jennifer suggested. And they have fire axes? Yes, firemen use axes, but they don't carry them around like a cop carries his gun. He pulled a file out of a stack of papers he had on the coffee table and opened it up. He handed a photo of an axe to Jennifer. This is a pickhead axe. It was standard equipment for every fire station in the city 60 years ago. Looks pretty deadly. He pulled out another photo showing a different type of axe. Instead of the end opposite the blade ending in a sharp pick, it was blunted. This is a flathead axe, the type that was found next to Sarah's body. Jennifer looked at Nate with shocked surprise. Wow, you did a lot of research on this. Force of habit. The point is, it's not the axe a fireman would have had easy access to. But someone else could have bought or found it and used it to kill Sarah Montgomery and the other girls. And do you know who that was? No, but I did find a common thread among the other four. They all had connections to the financial district. That sounds kind of thin. The financial district is fairly big and there are thousands of people there. True, but it is a connection. They lived in different parts of the city, but the one other thing they had in common was that they had nothing in common with Luther Laramie. A fireman meets hundreds of people. He worked in the fire station in this neighborhood. Presumably, that's how he met Sarah. His station wouldn't be involved in calls to the financial district or any of the neighborhoods where the women lived. Serial killers generally prefer areas they're familiar with. The only woman he had any familiarity with was Sarah. And the way she was killed, it's not the type of thing someone does to a person you love. It's too messy. It doesn't make sense. I don't think Luther was the axe man. Why did he attack your uncle? Why did he run from the police? Why did he kill himself? He found the love of his life brutally murdered. He had his blood all over his hands and clothes. But I'm not sure he killed himself. Because he jumped to the next building instead of the street. Exactly. A fireman would be very aware of the type of fall that could kill someone. The one that killed him could have just as easily left him with just a couple of broken legs. But the full twelve stories would have done him in without a doubt. I think the real killer was still here. I think he followed Luther to the rooftop and either chased him off the edge or pushed him. That's a lot of I thinks in there. Yeah, and absolutely no proof, but it makes sense, Nate said, setting down his folder. Diane picked out a comfortable pair of pajamas from her dresser, mindful of the camera placed in a corner of the room. It did make her uncomfortable that Dr. Day and her crew would be recording her sleeping, but she wanted to do everything she could to find out what was going on. She trusted Jennifer and her staff to be discreet, but she also knew of a few videos from her college days that were still floating around the internet that she hoped her future children would never see. She opened the closet door and used it as a screen between herself and the camera as she changed. She normally wouldn't skip brushing her teeth, but she was so tired, and her bedroom didn't have a direct doorway to the bathroom. She'd have to go back out into the living room and interact with Dr. Day and the detective. She'd just brush first thing in the morning. Right now, after an extra ten hours of soul-sucking work at the law firm, she just wanted to crawl under the covers and fall asleep. 
Diane closed the closet door and looked over at the camera. She froze. Standing there, mouthing words she couldn't hear, was the man in the fireman's coat. He moved toward her. She screamed. Jennifer and Nate both got to their feet immediately when they heard the shriek from Diane's bedroom. Diane, Jennifer called out. Diane, are you okay? There was no reply. Nate rushed over to the bedroom, refusing to let the orthopedic boot slow him down. He grabbed the knob and tried to open the door, but it was locked. Diane, he shouted. Open the door. Pressing his ear to the door, Nate could hear part of what sounded like a conversation, but he couldn't make out the words. Then there was a shout, followed by a thump. Nate reared back and slammed into the door with his good shoulder, but the old oak was too strong and he was too weak. Let me try, Jennifer said. Nate stepped back and she aimed a surprisingly powerful front kick at the door near the knob. Where did you learn to kick like that? Nate asked. I used to be a martial arts instructor in college. She landed another powerful kick. The door didn't budge. Hang on, I have an idea, she said. Jennifer raced out of the apartment into the hallway. She returned a few seconds later with an axe. It was in that box with the fire hose across from the elevators, she explained. She hefted the tool and took aim at where the door met the jam just above the doorknob. The axe bit into the solid wood. Jennifer pried it out, and after a few more blows, the door jam was starting to splinter. Give it another kick, Nate suggested. Jennifer set the axe aside and assumed a martial arts stance and launched all of her weight behind a front kick that shattered the door jam. The door swung open. Diane was lying unconscious on the floor. A ceramic bowl lay broken next to her. Jennifer rushed to her side while Nate scanned the room. The window was open. He went to it and cautiously stuck his head out. The fire escape was just outside. He looked down the iron steps, but there was no one there. He looked up. That was the only direction the assailant could have gone in such a short time. Henderson, he shouted. Nate pulled his head back in and went to check on Diane. Jennifer drew his attention to a bleeding wound on the back of Diane's head. Diane, Diane, Nate said as she started to drift back into consciousness. Was it Jerry? Is that who hit you? I saw him, Diane said weakly. Who? Who did you see? Jennifer asked. I'm not letting him get away, Nate said. Call 911. He headed for the window and stepped out onto the fire escape. He pulled out his phone, put it into flashlight mode, and pointed it skyward. There was no sign of the attacker. He started climbing the iron steps between floors, scaling the fire escape upward toward the roof. Jennifer grabbed a pillow from Diane's bed and gently lifted the woman's head to place it underneath. Diane cringed and let out a weak moan. What happened? Jennifer asked. Was it Jerry? Jerry? Diane asked, confused. No, it was the man in the coat. Luther? He hit you? No, she said, frustrated. He was trying to warn me. Warn you about what? Whoever hit me from behind. Thank you for listening to Part 13 of Near Death a rainy day investigation on the Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs podcast. Near Death was written by Rich Hosick, Arnold Rudnick, and Lloyd Auerbach. I hope you're enjoying the audio version of this novel. Please remember to share Near Death and my weekly stories with your friends or anyone who enjoys audiobooks. You can find out more about the Rainy Day Investigation book series at rainyanday.com. That's R-A-N-E-Y and D-A-Y-E dot com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Rich Hosick. Give us a like on Facebook at Rainy and Day. And don't forget to check out my books on Amazon and follow me there to make sure you get notified of when book two, Afterlife, is released. Thanks again, and all the very best.